This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. If there's one thing I know to be true about social media is that anyone can become an influencer, including your doctor. Of course, celebrity doctors are nothing new. There's Dr. Oz, Dr. Now, Dr. Drew, Dr. Pimple Popper, The Doctors. TV loves medical information as entertainment. But what happens when that entertainment shifts to social media? On the one hand, I think it's great that doctors are taking to these platforms and making medicine less of a mystery for people. But on the other hand, I always wonder about the medical ethics here. We've seen how misinformation can run rampant on social media, and we've also seen that it doesn't take much for anyone to gain a following online. So I wanted to explore this and get a better understanding of what it means when your doctor becomes an influencer. This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. So a couple of weeks ago, my sister FaceTimed me so I could see what my three-year-old nephew was up to. And in case you wanted to know, he was wanted to show me his new drum solo. And yes, it was the most adorable thing ever. She and I got to talking and she asked me what I was up to. I told her about this podcast I was producing for work and how I was thinking about doing an episode about doctors as social media influencers. My sister, Dr. Efi Finey, is an anesthesiologist. And on top of that, she is one of the most opinionated people I know. So, of course, she started going in. She was like, I don't like it. This is ridiculous. I don't think doctors should be doing this. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold up. Since you have so much to say about this, why don't you bring it on the podcast? So I invited my skeptical doctor sister to kick things off with her take on this issue. Welcome to my podcast. <laughs> Thanks, little brother. Ew. This is so cool. <laughs> little brother, please. So the internet obviously is a is bountiful source of information, both good and bad. And what we've seen happening a lot is doctors getting on these platforms like TikTok. And so a lot of the information is pretty innocuous. They're, they're usually just, you know, answering simple questions or dispelling, dispelling myths and whatnot. And so I would like to ask you, a doctor, <laughs> what your thoughts are on doctors getting on these platforms and giving advice and giving information. Well, like you said, anything can be good and bad, right? So I'm coming to this with the perspective of being a physician is a huge responsibility. So having said that, you have to be careful about information that you're dispensing because the lay public has... Excuse you. I didn't say I was talking to you. I mean, <laughs> I <could> be, <laughs> but John Q. Public, lay or, or educated, whatever, it's difficult to interpret. For example, if I'm giving, if I'm a doctor and I'm giving medical advice, there's a component of a physical exam that goes along with whatever um, medical advice you're administering to a patient. So then you're leaving it up to the patient to determine, okay, well, what symptoms do I have? And do I qualify for this? And, and, and does this look like this? And it's way too much information 
for even an educated person to kind of sort through and sift through and, and go through what we call a differential diagnosis. Like you have all these different symptoms and then your differential is all the possible things it could be. And then you have to look at, you know, what's most likely, like common things being common, and then what's most likely to kill you, like ruling out the bad things. And so that's, you know, it takes a long time to be a doctor. You know, you go through all these prereqs in college, you go to med school, you go to residency, you do, I did an extra year fellowship, and then you practice medicine and you still work on it. It's it's the art of medicine, you know, like there's art and a science component to it. So if you're trying to distill, you know, one problem into like a little TikTok video of 30 seconds or a, or a minute, like that's irresponsible to me. I feel like you're, you're giving people almost a false sense of, oh, I know what this is, or I can handle this. And the other thing too, that bothers me about it is doctors have a hard enough time bringing patients into the hospital to get checked out for um, preventative medicine and primary care. I'm a specialist. I'm not a primary doctor. So as an anesthesiologist, I mean, I end up seeing people who are coming for surgery. But even so, I have patients that have come for surgery and said, oh, nothing was wrong with me. I haven't seen a doctor in, in 20 years. And I show up and I have all these things wrong with me, you know? And the problem is they've had all those things wrong with them, but they didn't want to come to the doctor. So I feel like people getting on TikTok and Googling things gives them even more of an excuse. Oh, I Googled it. So I know what I have. It's even more mm. of a reason to not show up and get that eye contact, physical examination. There's a lot that can be done in a doctor's office to prevent things from happening or to mitigate things that are already happening or find better solutions. So from a doctor's perspective, like what are the pitfalls here? Well, it depends on how it's given and how it's couched, right? So like mm. um, as far as like medical legally, you know, you uh, you can say, hey, you know, please consult your own physician before, you know, taking my advice. You can say that as like a blanket statement to kind of um, bubble proof you or whatnot or protect you. But again, I kind of go back to the responsibility aspect. It's like you're throwing things out there into the dark. You don't know who's listening. You don't know if the person on the other end of that TikTok video has something that could kill them. And they're choosing to believe that their symptoms are completely benign. You know, for example, something shortness of breath, right? Shortness of breath is a symptom that could be pathognomonic of a hundred different things um it could be heart oh <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry i take it back i am a lay person i'm sorry i spoke too soon <laughs> pick a side chief pick a side i'm sorry i'm sorry <laughs> back that up okay so pathognomonic it's basically saying like um this is uh, a salient feature of a disease like this is typical of this disease so a very generic symptom is shortness of breath. Shortness of breath could be because you're obese and because you're out of shape, deconditioned, and you just can't walk very far. Shortness of breath could be a cardiac reason. Maybe you have blockages in your heart and your heart's not pumping enough blood to your brain and other organs, so you're short of breath. Um, there could be a, a lot of different reasons to be short of breath, but somebody that doesn't want to believe they have cardiac disease, somebody that is very mentally invested in the fact that I'm fine, nothing's wrong with me, even though they may be a smoker, they may be obese, they may be a diabetic. You know, there's a rule in medicine, everyone lies. So it's like people always see the best version of themselves. They always see things. Most people are going to minimize their symptoms and always think that something is less serious than it is. So kind of to circle back to your question, I just feel like there's an inherent danger in making it okay not to go to the professional, not to get 
a physical exam, not to let someone lay eyes on you. You know, there's a lot that can be determined. I I, I'm, I go to the mall and I look at people all the time like, whoa, you know, what I mean, just, just the, my trained eyes can see things in people like they should probably get that checked because that's my training, you know, and <laughs> you're laughing. I mean, I, yeah, I'm just saying it's like, <laughs> it's like you're judging in doctor. You're just like, you know? all the time. <laughs> you, okay. You do too. Cause we people watch together. So don't I know, like but I, I don't do it from your perspective. I mean, I don't have, I don't have the doctor speak to like, be like, Oh, this person is <laughs> pathogenic or whatever. I'm just like, Oh, that <laughs> Leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so, and again, I'm coming to it from just a place of, yes, there are some benefits. What I take issue with is people administering these advice to patients kind of in a vacuum. You don't, you're putting it out there. You don't know who's receiving it. You don't know what conditions they think that they have, and you don't know how they're interpreting what you say. I told you my sister was opinionated, but I love her for it because talking to her set me down a rabbit hole of figuring out what are the ethical concerns with doctors being on social media. The American Medical Association does have a set of guidelines for this, but they're mainly about protecting a patient's privacy. I wanted to get a better understanding of the concerns around doctors as social media influencers when it comes to things like the gray area of advice versus information or even brand deals. If a doctor is endorsing a product or a drug, you'd probably trust them way more than a regular influencer, right? So, should there be extra scrutiny there? I called Dr. Dom Sisti to help me unpack all of this. He's a professor of medical ethics and health policy at the University of Pennsylvania, and this is a space he's been thinking about a lot. So I asked him, does he think bioethics is up to date with social media? Not at all. No. In fact, that's like one of our key themes in the course that I'm co-teaching this semester. We've been saying this all along is like we've been telling our students, you have to get you know caught up on this because we're behind and you know better. Like, you know how this stuff works better than than Gen Xers and boomers. So get in there and fix this before it gets even worse. I think social media was something that we as bioethicists just didn't have our eyes on. And uh, and it's coming back now to haunt us. Um, mm. A couple of colleagues and I wrote a paper a few years ago saying, essentially, like, so preoccupied with, like, the Human Genome Project in the 1990s. There was all this grant money for bioethicists to look at the ethics of genetics. Um, all the while, the Internet was growing and um, mushrooming into this, what we have today, this gigantic thing uh, that has propelled societies to change dramatically in a very short amount of time. And uh, while we were over here looking at genetics and cloning and things like this, social media was happening and it has had a profound impact on healthcare and on the way we think about medicine and the way we think about ourselves as, as human beings. And we're behind. So there needs to be, I think, a huge effort. Um, there needs to be federal dollars. There needs to be a whole, you know, almost like a human genome project, LC. It was called LC at the time, the Ethical, Legal, and Social Implications of the Human Genome Project. That was a big, big funding program. We need something like that for social media, a big mm-hmm. LC program to really like, carefully examine the ethical, legal, and social implications of social media AI as it pertains in particular to, to medicine and healthcare. So a part of this issue that I always think about are doctors doing brand deals as influencers. So what are the guidelines there? Yeah. Well, look, if it were up to me, direct to consumer ads for prescription medications would be illegal like they were prior to Mm. the 1990s. 
and in no other country are they you know allowed i mean direct to consumer right. ads that we see on you know every day for every kind of drug now um it's almost like you know that's like all the ads you see like during football game at <laughs> the time during football games sports events it's like you know those and the u.s ads, is the only country that does yeah that. i mean it's there's not a lot of places that allow direct to consumer <laughs> ads for prescription drugs and, and a lot of countries you know folks come here and they're like i can't believe all these commercials for like, these prescription drugs that are super complicated they have risks they have benefits but like how wow. do you and and then you go to a doctor with a coupon that says can i have x you know and and then the doctor has to sort of feels like I have to kind of give it to them because we've made healthcare into a commodity yes. and we've made con- patients into consumers. And so that model is now with us everywhere. And that's how influencers often think about, mm-hmm. you know, the pop, I mean, not everyone, but I mean, the folks that are trying to enhance their products and trying to monetize patients are consumers in effect in our, in, in our, in our society with, you know, the ethos that we have, hyper-capitalist ethos, medicine, healthcare is considered a commodity. And so, you know, that that leads us to wonder about, well, okay, so you've got direct-to-consumer ads on TV, uh, doctors are pitching things, you've got people, you know, athletes pitching things, Kim Kardashian pitching things. Um, so it's just a bad situation just in general because what it is is emotional appeals to mm-hmm. people as if you're selling them a car or a beer and not a drug that could, like, you know, help them maybe, but hurt them too. Right? right. So healthcare is, a is to me a very different like sector. It shouldn't be treated as though it's a, a commodity like any other. Uh, Cause we're talking about people's health. And so I would say like, if we could clean all that up, that'd be ideal. But since we probably can't influencers should just disclose and be transparent almost down to the scent and tell everybody how much they're getting to hawk the product. I'm wondering what these concerns looked like from your perspective during the pandemic when we saw misinformation and honestly disinformation running so rampant online. I mean, of course, there were doctors trying their best to combat all of that, but there were also some doctors on the other end of the spectrum. Right. So misinformation is a big problem, obviously. We know that, right? So the COVID pandemic has revealed that there are you know, unscrupulous physicians that are willing to say pretty much anything to increase their follower count. I mean, it becomes really just about that and monetizing their social media feeds. Um, So, you know, if you have doctors out there saying, you know, vaccines are not very effective or whatever, coming up with um, various sort of political kind of shrouded political statements that appeal to a certain audience, you know, that's really bad. Because remember, the first, you know, the first ethical sort of pillar of medicine, a doctor has taken oath, they say do no harm. And so when a physician is out there kind of speculating about ivermectin um, or some other medicine that is purported to help with, say, COVID, but there's no evidence that they're out there just kind of talking about it as if it's like a legitimate thing, that's problematic because there'll be people that see, oh, they have an MD after their name. They must know what they're talking about. Then I think there's there's probably folks that are unintentional misinformers. Yep. They're just out there getting followers, kind of doing what they think makes some sense uh, without really being critical thinkers about what they're saying. The misinformation crowd is a big problem, obviously. We don't have our social media platforms really don't have the infrastructure in place to adequately deal with 
misinformation, um, healthcare misinformation, political misinformation, just misinformation in general, just is just everywhere. And these platforms really need to learn how to figure out how to police it better and take all that stuff down before it, it disseminates because that misinformation, it just kind of burrows into the brains of people and it's hard to get out. You can't really reverse misinformation once a person kind of, you know, takes it in. Right. And how closely is this being watched? Because I, I would imagine, you know, the, the quote, I'm not going to call them watchdog group. There's so much more than that. But I mean, I would imagine it's the American Medical Association or they should be involved. But this is happening within platforms if we're specifically talking about social media. And I highly doubt that there is a specific department within, say, TikTok that is just like meta, like bioethics. So I guess like, who's, no. yeah. what are the checks and balances right now? Like as it stands, like who's who's Nothing. the watchdog? It's, a, it's okay. the Wild West. That's what I figured. The Wild West. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. And bioethicists, as I said, have been kind of, you know, slow from the start here in recognizing this as a big problem. Yeah. Um, had we been on it maybe 10 years ago, I think we could have come up with some good rules and guidelines mm-hmm. and maybe we wouldn't have seen some of the misinformers, for example, that we see on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok mm-hmm. as we see during the pandemic. It's true. I mean, there's a, it's just Wild West. The platforms, I think, are starting to kind of think about it and care. But again, they're, they're driven by clicks. They don't really care about these yeah. higher, you know, quote unquote, ethical norms it's just can we get more clicks can our you know users get more clicks can, actually can our advertisers get more clicks right, right? it's not really about any, any of us right. so um you know it's not even about the influencers to, to be honest they're kind of a product as well it's the it's the advertisers that matter very much so <laughs> We reached out to TikTok and Twitter for comment about all of this. TikTok referred us to its current guidelines, while Twitter says it's working, quote, closely with trusted partners, including public health authorities, NGOs and governments, and other authoritative sources to elevate credible info and add context to content across the service so that people on Twitter can make informed decisions, end quote. But like Dr. Sisti said, bioethics on social media is still very much the Wild West. And after the break, We're going to hear from one doctor navigating this Wild West with nearly 14 million fans watching. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. So far, we've gotten the point of view from my skeptical doctor sister and a medical ethics professor. So, of course, I had to talk to a doctor who's actually found a second career as a content creator. Dr. Manib Shah is a dermatologist who truly has a deep appreciation for helping patients look and feel better, popping their cysts and all. Well, a lot of people don't realize that there are scents involved in the pops, right? So when you have a really juicy cyst like that that you see on social media there is a very distinguished scent that comes along with it. So that you don't want to experience. And how would you describe that? Let's go there. Why not? Uh, like rank, <laughs> like, you know, like, dead, like dead tissue, you know, oh, it's, God. It, like it could stink up the whole office if you have a really bad one, like where you have to like air out the building for a little bit. Yeah, we're just going to move right past that fun fact and talk about another fact that so many creators like Dr. Shaw have found success online by accident. He started posting videos during the pandemic, giving information on a variety of skin conditions. 
Those videos quickly went viral, and now Dr. Shah has nearly 14 million followers on TikTok. He's certainly not alone. Other doctors like Dr. Pimple Popper and Dr. Mike started with a fan base online that they've spun into entertainment careers, and it's what Dr. Shaw wants to do too. But he's also aware of the concerns that come with being a voice of authority on a platform like TikTok. It's why he put, quote, education, not influence, end quote, in his bio. Yeah, well, the way that I look at it, right, is like, you know, teach a man to fish, right? That's my sort of mentality. And when I initially got on TikTok, I figured that if I just told everybody, you know, like, what ingredients were good, what ingredients to avoid, you know, teach them about conditions that they would be able to then go and make better decisions for their skin and for their health and save money and not be tricked by marketing scams. It was basically because of how I felt when I first started getting into skincare. As a male getting into skincare, I didn't have a good outlet of information. I didn't have any product recommendations to go with. And so every time I walked into Sephora or Ulta, I would be overwhelmed. Like, I was like, I don't even know how to make a decision in this store. And I would just like gravitate towards the like cologne aisle, buy some cologne and walk out of the store because I just didn't know what to buy. And I figured I can make this simple for people. And if I can educate them, then I'm not influencing them because now they're going to make their own decisions. And it may not be the product I recommend, but they're going to make the right choice for them. And that was the goal of the whole thing was to give people the power to make decisions for themselves. Right. I can understand the benefits of having, you know, actual dermatologists on TikTok. I mean, it's free access to advice and education. But if you step back a bit and remove your doctor hat, are there any negatives from a follower's perspective? That's a good question. You know, I think the information is somewhat incomplete. Um, And so I, I see that sometimes happening where I'll make a statement and then somebody will comment on another video. Well, Dr. Shaw said this and they'll tag me. And I'm like, well, I didn't really say that, right? So because the videos are, you know, uh, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, there's not a lot of room for nuance. And a lot of medicine is has a lot of nuance in it. And you just, there's no room for nuance on, on TikTok. On, on YouTube, which I also do, you know, I can get into the 20 minutes on the pros and cons and get into the weeds of things. And then that way, I feel like it's a more of a complete education. But I look at TikTok as just snippets of information. But I'm very careful about what I say because I realize people can go the wrong direction if they they have a little bit of information, but not enough information. And so I'm very careful about what I do. I think as a dermatologist on social media, you are a lot of times representing the specialty. And so you may be the only touch point that a person has ever had with a dermatologist or dermatology. And so it's very important. And I'm very conscious of this because like I said, I look at it as more of a responsibility of what does my content mean for not just me and the education that I'm providing for people, but what does it mean for dermatologists as a whole? And is that encouraging trust in the profession or is it pushing people away? Like I don't, you know, make fun of people. Like I don't do like embarrassing things. Do you know what I mean? Like, cause I feel like, you know, I have to make it entertaining and educational, but at the same time, not cross that line. That's going to violate the trust that I have with my followers. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea of a celebrity in any field outside of entertainment can draw some, you know, some ire, right? I mean, when you think of like celebrity chefs and people, people are always like, oh, are you a real chef anymore? So, I mean, have you received any pushback or negativity from the dermatology community for what you do on social? That's a really good question. And and not a lot of people ask it because they don't think of it from that perspective, but that's absolutely, if you think about it, it's always going to be people within your immediate community that are going to be the most critical of you. Um, So the people that, you know, that are on TikTok that are receiving this information and benefiting from this information, they don't see it that way. Right. So it's the, it's always your peers, right. That are going to be the most critical of what you do. And so 
You know, absolutely. I think when I, when I first started, you know, TikTok was a new platform. People looked at it as like a dancing platform, a platform for younger people. And, you know, there were a lot of dermatologists on Instagram at the time that were, you know, creating educational content, but, you know, TikTok was sort of this uncharted territory and this unknown uh, area of how to educate. And I, I think you have to win people over through consistent, um, accurate, ethical behavior. Um, and then they realize that it's a net positive for the specialty. So when I first started, probably the first, first couple months, nobody even knew I was doing it. Right. And then probably about six months in, I became on the radar of the other, you know, the dermatology community at large. And then there was this like hesitation. What is he going to do with this giant platform that he has? And is he going to, you know, take, um, have good relationships with good brands? Is he going to have good relationship with his audience? Is he going to, you know, hold himself ethically? Is he going to put out information that's accurate? Because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I think, I help, I won those people o- over over time from just consistently being who I am. And so now I have a really good relationship with the dermatology community. And I'm part of a lot of different like working groups on how dermatologists can use social media to reach the public. And I'm on a lot of like young dermatologist initiative programs that are really trying to bring dermatology in it, into the community as a whole. So I think initially there was the hesitation, but I think eventually you sort of win those people over if you're if you're doing the right things. So I wonder, what are the ethical concerns here for you as a doctor who's now also a social media influencer? That's a good question. And that's a gray area. So it's, it's sort of an area that has not been well-defined. And I think we have to take the initiative on our side to try to define what that means um, and to kind of put in safeguards as well, because, you know, you could also be dangerous at that scale as well. So I definitely think that there are ethical considerations that any, like if the doctor is listening to this right now and they're wondering, should I get on TikTok and start making content? You have to familiarize yourself like I have with like the legal implications, like what the American Medical Association guidelines are on ethics, on what your state board says about, you know, the way that you represent yourself. And there's a lot of things that you have to consider. And then you just have to, the way that I look at it is like, you know, I sleep well at night because I know when I make content that I make it with the best intentions. And you're not always going to get it right, which is why you always have to listen to feedback from your community. So if you say something that maybe offends people or something that wasn't as sensitive as it should have been, or maybe something that was inaccurate because you are basing your information on old data, that you have to be responsible and remove that information and correct that information for the public. And so you know, I've made thousands of videos at this point. And so, you know, I'm constantly listening to my community and wondering, like, if I'm doing the right thing. And I'm like, if I feel like even for a second that that uh, what I said could be misinterpreted or could be acted on a way that I wouldn't want a person to act on, even if it's viral and it has millions of views, I'll take the video down immediately because I think that's the responsibility that I have to do that. Right. And I think some of my skepticism with medical professionals being content creators is like the inevitable brand deals. You know, of course, content creators without a medical degree suggest things all day long and no disrespect to them, but I always take what they say with a huge grain of salt. But call me crazy, but I take what doctors say on TikTok with an even bigger grain of salt because I'm sitting like, it would be so easy to trust them, wouldn't it? Like, I'm so maybe I'm just like really crazy and skeptical. But I mean, how how do you engender that trust with your followers? Like that's you know, because especially when it comes to product recommendations, because I know a lot of people are very wary of being sold to. And so it can be very easy to be very skeptical. So how do you build trust with your followers? This is a good question. I think 
the process of a brand deal, and I probably should do like a longer video on this at some point, is so much more complex, I think, than people realize. And the decisions that you make um, to, in order to take that brand deal and whether or not it aligns with who you are, whether it aligns with your audience, is, is complex. And so I think any content creator that has large scale is they, they realize that their only value on the platform is the trust that they have with their audience. And I think anyone that does this at scale realizes that very quickly that the platform was given by the audience and can be taken away by the audience. And so, and people are smart. That is one thing I'll like anyone who's going to do this. If you think you're going to fool a large group of people, you're not like people are very smart. And so, for example, if I say, I don't like this particular ingredient or I don't like this particular product or this particular brand, and then you know, six months later, I get this amazing offer to work with the brand. And then all of a sudden I start contradicting myself, like people are going to call you out right away. And so the way that you take responsible brand partnerships is by being consistent. Like it has to align with everything you've said before that and what you'll say afterwards. And so people realize hypocrisy very quickly and they realize that if it's associated with the brand deal, I mean, it's even worse, right? But my baseline, and I always say this on YouTube like, how do I decide what I'm going to recommend at the sea of products that are out there? And there's so many factors that go into it from cost to the ethics of the brand and the sustainability of the brand to the ingredients, their efficacy, all that kind of stuff. Right. And it's really simple, actually, for me now. It's if I would recommend this product to my mom, my sister, my wife, my other family members, like then I'll feel comfortable taking that brand deal with the company. And if it doesn't meet that guideline, like I don't care what the offer is and, and brands that work with me know, I will. Sh I don't care how much money you come after me with, if it does not align with my, and, and it makes me a little more difficult to work with, but like it, like I feel good about what I do and I sleep well at night because I know that if my mom called me and said, hey, what do you think about this product? I'd be like, yep, buy it. It's the right price point, right ingredients. It's gonna work for you. And I've been doing this for two years and I think my following knows like he he's consistent. He's consistent. He's not coming out of the blue with random recommendations. Right. And, you know, we can't forget that you are still a full-time doctor <laughs> and being a content creator is very much a full-time job in itself. Right. So where is the balance for you? The balance is what I'm trying to figure out. So <laughs> I, I am full-time practicing. Uh, medicine. And so I practice about 40 to 50 hours a week. And then wow. I'm active on all three major platforms. So full-time content creator as well. So it's like 24 set. Like I came from clinic seeing patients. Now I'm on this podcast with you. Right. So it's like, thank you for your time. <laughs> no, I know it's, I love what I do. That's why I did like, it's not work for me. Like I talk about the things that I love on social media. I talk about the things I love in clinic. I don't get a lot of sleep because of that, but, um, I love, I, like, I love what I do. And like, I feel like with the platform that I have, like you said, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Why I like TikTok is because I can duet misinformation while it's happening. So it's almost like you see the original video and then you see the duet, like, and, and, and like, it's this thing that like I was given this platform by my audience and they tag me in thousands of videos a day. And I'm like, you know, if you trust me, then I have to like continue doing this until you don't need me anymore. And then hopefully I've educated you, like I said, to the point where you don't need me anymore, right? Like you, you don't need to be influenced. You're now educated. And so that is, that's the goal, right? So I, I love what I do. Mm -hmm. And do you ever feel like the in-person clinic work that you do 
suffers at all because of you being a content creator because there's only so many hours in the day and it's both jobs are very demanding so i imagine going back to that question of balance i would imagine that sometimes like there is one side that gets a little bit more attention so i mean do you ever feel like it is too much you ever feel like you're the foundation of your career is kind of suffering a little bit you know i think that that's a good question um i think the people around me would tell me, you know, they're very blunt with me and honest, you know, so they would tell me if, you know, anything was suffering in any way. Um, I would say the one thing that I've sacrificed through this whole past two years has probably been like my own health because it's like the one thing that I could take away from without like, you know, sacrificing the other things. Um, and so it's, it's really, that's probably the main thing is like, you know, not exercising, not eating healthy, not having enough, uh, probably wellness in my own life. But I think the content can wait always, right? So my main responsibility is to my patients in clinic. And so actually when I'm in clinic, like I don't even pick up my phone or look at anything, right? So I, when, I, when I first started um, going viral, you know, and I was kind of like, at first I was like, oh, check my phone and like, you know, all that kind of stuff throughout the day in clinic. And then I realized like, I have to keep these two things separate. What would you say is your plan long-term for this? Where do you see this success that you've gained online? Where do you see this going? My goal, you know, is to use my platform on on TikTok and YouTube to create more of like a media, like a dermatology media, like where I can elevate, like you can only be a content creator for so long, right? And the way that I look at it is like, if I could pass the baton on to other people and guide them through what I learned over the last two years through like just purely doing it, you know, like from doing it and learning from my mistakes and like, you like a lot of the questions that you're asking, like I've already worked out the solutions to those questions because I've been doing it for a long period of time. But if you're new, you still have to work out these things. Like what are the ethical implications? How can you protect yourself? What insurance do you need? All that kind of stuff. And how do you negotiate a brand deal? How do you make sure you're protected as a dermatologist? How are, how are you protected in a way that you know they're never going to make you say something that you don't align with? Like you have to build that stuff into the contracts to protect you and your profession. And so like all those things, I'm like, I, I want to pass this on to other people so that we can create a platform where dermatologists can be spotlighted for their knowledge. You know, we have 12 years of education that goes into what we do and the recommendations that we make. And we make a lot of, a lot of important decisions when we make those recommendations. And so I would want to try to elevate the voices of the dermatology community and become like a Ryan Seacrest of dermatology. Do you know what I mean? Or like a Andy Cohen, yeah. a Andy Cohen of dermatology. <laughs> you know, like I don't want to be the guy. You know, I want to be. I want to. You know, I want to be the guy that's asking the questions. I want to be what you're doing right now. <laughs> I do think that there's a real positive impact doctors can have by being on social media. And of course, it would be nice if all of them were as mindful of ethical concerns as Dr. Shaw, but we know that isn't the case. There will always be people doing anything for clout, including doctors. As we just heard, it's a wild west of gray areas that needs clear guidelines. But I'd like to think, and this is me just being a Pollyanna, I'll raise my hand, I'd like to think that there are more doctors on these platforms doing more good than harm. I will say, all of this made me wonder what someone like my skeptical doctor sister would be like as an influencer. As much as it pains me to admit, pains me to admit, she is pretty damn smart. And clearly she knows how to talk. Oh, let's imagine a world where you are so bold as to join TikTok. 
and because <laughs> you still send me crusty Facebook memes, so I don't expect you to Yo. join TikTok anytime. <laughs> What's wrong with Facebook? A lot. Funny you should mention okay. that there's a lot wrong with Facebook. <laughs> but let's imagine hey, a world. I'm, I'm keeping it old school. Yeah, it we old know. School. What we I know. know. <laughs> we know. <laughs> Very old school. Talking about some. Oh, What's back in my day, it was social. We were in person with social. We didn't have none of this TikToks. We went to the community. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but my question is, if you were to join TikTok, what's the way to do this right? Okay. If I were doing this, I would... Get your hair done first. You know, can't be jumping on camera looking busted. <laughs> Are you implying that I look busted on a regular basis? I, your word's not mine. Wow. See how you I walked mean, right into that? Anyway, continue. Okay. <laughs> to, to your question. To your question, little brother. Um, I would, first of all, make it clear that I'm an anesthesiologist. I do have a fellowship in oncoanesthesia, which is cancer anesthesia. So I would limit my topics to my area of expertise, but I would focus the show on like things you need to know before you go to surgery, do's and don'ts. And it would be very kind of not, this is how you diagnose yourself, or these are your conditions. It would be like, these are areas of concern. Should you have shortness of breath? Should you have chest pain? Should you feel nauseated? You know, call your physician. Like, just highlight areas that people should be thinking about and concerned about. Not telling them what it is or what to do, but to seek medical advice, seek medical attention. And then when you show up for surgery, these are things that will make your anesthesiologist happy. You know, like, take a shower, brush your teeth, you know, um, shave your beard. Um, ladies, don't come with long fingernails like i mean don't come with painted fingernails like there's a whole host of things that people just don't know or no one tells them so it would be more like little tidbits like that and then what to expect on the day of surgery you know and obviously that's going to be particular to the type of surgery you're having where you're having it but there's some general things that you can expect um and then for recovery you know make sure you have an uh, an adult to drive you home some people get their surgery canceled because they just show up by themselves or they think they can uber home so it would be more geared towards like kind of basic information and things that you should know to be wary of to seek further advice. I wouldn't be telling people, you know, this is how you intubate yourself, which is putting a breathing tube in your mouth, by the way, for those of you lay people like my brother. Thank you. Wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That answered your question. It did. Thank you. Thank you to end on a very rude note. I I appreciate it. (laughs) Wow. I was just saying, we were about to like wrap up this lovely conversation. And you're just like, oh yeah, by the way, my brother's dumb. So cool. Cool, 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 cool. Yo, your word's not mine. <laughs> Ooh-wee! <laughs> well played. Love you. Love you That's all for this episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also, make sure you rate and comment as well. We'd love to hear from you. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Franz Bowen, Avery Miles, and Blake Odom. Editing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Deputy editor David Liskey provided editorial oversight for this episode, as well as senior VP of entertainment, Scott Mebus. 